people have to move out of their their own personal mindset right you have to look at the people that you represent as whole people whole human beings that have different needs and may need different things but you have to really understand it there needs to be something where people can actually say I don't know what this feels like but you're telling me what it's like and I have to trust that you're listening to on the record off script and it is the summer We're going to take a break from our usual format until around September, and between now and then, we'll share a slightly different style of episode with you. The voice you heard on the way into this episode belongs to Yvonne Atwell, and today's episode is an extended interview with Yvonne. Yvonne was the NDP MLA for the riding of Preston for just 18 months in the late 90s. She had run for that party in that riding before and lost. She'd also run to be the leader of that party and lost again this time to Robert Chisholm, who would lead the party to its near victory in the 1998 election, where the Liberals and the NDP each won 19 seats. One of the NDP's 19 seats went to Yvonne Atwell. Yvonne has the honor of having been the first female African Nova Scotian MLA, and is the first, and I believe only, black woman to be elected to a provincial legislature in any of the Atlantic provinces. So in this episode, and the next several episodes, we'll give you a behind-the-scenes look at what some of our interviews with former MLAs sounded like. As you know, we've done dozens of these interviews with former MLAs. Some were fascinating and some were not. So the interviews we'll share with you over the next few months will be in the former category. They come from former MLAs who don't always agree with one another, but all of whom have strong opinions and reflections to share and articulate them clearly. For the most part, the interviews you'll hear will be largely unedited. Some of our questions fell flat and didn't provoke much of a response, so we've trimmed those questions out for your benefit. And on that note, here's my interview with Yvonne Atwell, which took place in Halifax in July of 2015. What did you do before you entered politics? I worked with the um, African Canadian Employment Clinic. Uh, we set up that set up that clinic for employment purpose for the African Nova Scotian community. And was there a political element to that position? There's always a political element to anything that's being done in the African Nova Scotian community. So, you know, for employment issues, yeah, because you're, you're always looking for programs and funding and uh, trying to make the community a better place. So oftentimes um, it was about, you know, talking to politicians, looking at policies and procedures, whether it was federally or provincially, that could assist with you doing a good job for your community. So, yeah. And I noticed you ran for NDP leadership before you actually ran for uh, the seat of an MLA. Oh, yes, um, yes. That was in 96, I think. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what motivated you to do that? Well, probably because I could. Uh, there was nothing that said I couldn't. And I was thinking also that even though I knew that probably I wouldn't be successful, but it was an opportunity to discover other parts of the province. If I wanted to run again, those, those, you know, you can make some pretty good contacts, especially around fundraising and supports and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I just simply did it because the, the, um, it was boring. I mean, there was no competition, you know. Robert Chisholm was a shoe-in. And, and what were some of the driving ideas 
that there are issues that, that drove you to get involved? Well, there's always issues, and some of the issues were that I I thought at that time, and it's hard for me to remember everything, but uh, that the NDP could form government. You know, I, I believe that we could form government, and at that time, it was like. No, we can't. You know, you're sort of dreaming in technical color, right? Mm -hmm. But I believe that, you know, given time and energy, that we could we could form government. Otherwise, why are you going doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, you there's got to be a purpose. You're not just doing it for opposition for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we should have. I don't know. But that was the the reason is to say, you know, if you're looking down the road you got to look towards more than just staying in opposition. Hmm. Right? And what uh, what was it about the NDP that made you pick that party? Well, you know, I mean, basically I grew up in a family where that was liberal. My father was, uh, and you know, so I moved away when I was young. When I left the province and came back to my communities, things didn't look much different at all. And, you know, in 20 years, it didn't look any different. And so I just started getting involved in the community. And, of course, your name get out there when you start doing some community activism, right? So actually, uh, somebody put me in contact with Alexa McDonough. And so we had uh, a long, you know, sort of building that relationship over quite a, about a year or more before I would even decide that maybe this is something I wanted to do. But she was very instrumental in laying out, you know, the possibilities. And so... Uh, yeah, I just decided to do it, mm. but with lots of support, of course. Right, and that would have been while Alexa was leader. Alexa was leader at that time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When we had started those conversations and that sort of thing. You ran for leadership, didn't win, and then a few years later, you run to. Well, actually, I ran three times. Three times. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about the first time. Well, I ran when the um, the new boundaries was uh, selected out in Preston. And, of course, at that time, um, the NDP was virtually unknown, frankly. Um, it was always liberatory out there, and that was very historical. So what we did, uh, we, there was, we set up an association in the president for the NDP, and then there was a number of us that ran for, um, um, for that position, right? As, yeah, because the election was coming. There was uh, three of us. So I won that by about one vote, right? The nomination. Yeah, the nomination. I won the nomination by about one vote. And so that was the beginning of building the profile uh, of the NDP in that area. And so I ran, and of course I lost. I got like 500 votes, you know, probably friends and family. <laughs> and I ran for the leadership. And then the sec then I ran again, and that's when I won the, when I won the seat. Okay. Yeah. So I guess were, were there anything things you learned on the election trail the first few times that surprised you? I don't know if it was surprising that people knew very little about the third party, right? They knew very little about the party they were voting for, actually. Um, but you know, traditional standard over all the years, and people just saw the NDP as a communist party. That's what they thought. Uh, and that was in was that ninety three I think I ran. Hmm. Uh, they had no concept of of what that meant. They just figured that they were a bunch of folks who, you know, wanted to destroy everything. I guess. So so my support, a lot of my support came from the union during that time because and so when I ran, um, 
So that kind of surprised me that people didn't know even about the parties that they were voting for mm-hmm. because I had to learn about the party that I was involved in. I just couldn't, you know, many conversations with a lot of people. And Alexa was really a mentor to me. And because the boundaries had changed, it was an opportunity to have an African Nova Scotia, um, you know, person, you know, sitting in the legislature. And it was Wayne Adams one at that time. And he was the liberal candidate then. Okay. But, I mean, that was the idea, it was that uh, it was an opportunity. Um, it wasn't a designated seat, which some people thought it was. And I always had my, I had feelings around that, that, that it was too soft and still too liberal. Uh, what do you mean it wasn't a designated seat? It wasn't a de- designated seat for members of the black community to run um, and to hold a seat in government. Now, I mean, it, it happened to some extent, but there was always... Uh, but it was never something that was supported by the parties, right? In the early days, the New Democrat openly supported that, you know. A designated um, seat or? A, that they openly supported um, a designated seat, but it didn't happen. The terms of reference said an opportunity to participate, right? So which means that anybody could come in and run. Right. You didn't have to be African Nova Scotia, even though we were representing uh, those areas. Mm-hmm. Um in hindsight, I, I kind of feel that that should not have been the way we we should have went. Uh, it was either going to be designated seats. This was my position anyway. Um, designated seats across the province. So you would maybe look at some regions. And I know that, you know, based on our political structure, you know, you've got 52 seats, you can't have five of them black. I don't know why, but, you know, it's, it's based on our... And the communities are small, right? So, but what happened is, as soon as you get elected, then you become everybody's representative. Every black person in the province is your representative. So I'm saying, well, you know, why not cut it up into regions so that, and you can appoint, you don't necessarily have to elect. Uh, that's possible. You can appoint seats and have people set in, in the legislature. Uh, because we hit, how else do you get information? How else do you participate? if you don't see yourself visible. But, of course, that didn't happen. And so Wayne lost his seat to me, and I lost my seat to David Hensby, and that was the end of the basically anybody winning out there. There was people who ran, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't didn't win that seat back. Right. And then, of course, with the government, the NDP government, they changed the boundaries, uh, which didn't provide uh, a better opportunity. As a matter of fact, it lessened what we already had. Mm-hmm. Um and I was part of, you know, those um, uh, those discussions as well. But I guess that's what they wanted. But So I, my feeling is at this point that we will never get another African Nova Scotian to represent that area. But I could be wrong because there are young people coming up who, you know, maybe looking at uh, politics in a different way. Mm. Uh, I think the person we have there now, um, oh, what's his name? Anyway. Uh, he's Keith Cole. Keith Cole, yeah. He's been the candidate there for mm-hmm. so long. And you it's it's really he has he works the those communities, right? He 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 uh, he offers them things. Um I'm not gonna say anything more, but he does offer them things. But um as long as he's there he probably will maintain that seat until he's ready to give it up and then who knows. Hmm. Well I think it is that because the two African Nova Scotian members of the legislature now are not representing, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, they're not representing communities that are uh, have a high number of African Nova Scotians in them. And 
Keith's right, or Keith is representing a community that does. Why do you think there is that kind of... Uh... Well, well, you have to remember that the black community is small. Like, we only represent about a quarter of the population out there. So, um, his strong support is probably in, like, Echo and Porter's Lake. And also, there's a lot of support in, in the black community for, for Keith. He's a liberal. And so that tradition, even though, you know, I won the seat, there was a lot of activity around that, that tradition still holds pretty strongly out there. Uh, even the liberals, pretty strongly. But um, the people who ran had to run in their own writings, right? Like Tony Ince from uh, Cole Harbor, you know. He took Darrell's seat, and that's the area he ran in. And uh, Mr. Goff, uh, he also, the area that he ran in. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes I think when people vote in people that they don't traditionally vote in. For example, for me, sometimes I think, well, was this a vote for the NDP and Yvonne Atwell, the NDP, or was this a slap against Wayne Adams, the liberal, because he didn't do what he was supposed to do? And sometimes I think that's what happens. So you get, a lot of people get one terms um, of, of in politics. I mean, I was told that by uh, a constituency member in, in, in Portis Lake who said, well, you know what, we gave the liberals a chance, we gave the NDP a chance, and now it's time for conservatives. So that's when they voted in David Hensby, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I guess, you know, you just go down the list. And <laughs> but it's really, it's really quite interesting because uh, I don't think that you can represent a community like the African Nova Scotian community in, 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 in you can represent it in, in the collective way with other areas that are like like Ports Lake and like Echo that are, you know, medium to upper income levels in terms of, of economics and then mm -hmm. you know, the Prestons who have a lower up economic position. I used to have a hard time with uh, people calling me from those areas when they had a pothole in front of their door. Uh, in front of their the road that they're you know and they have a boat in the backyard and they have a, a small plane in their in their their, their shed or whatever uh, up around uh, Porter's Lake and they would have a pothole and they would call you you want your pothole fixed and then some people in Preston who were looking for a turkey for Christmas dinner you know it's it's very hard to to be able to try to bring some you know equality. Because both people had an issue that was important to them. Right. Um, and so you deal with it the best way you know how to deal with it, right? Mm. So that was that was that was the most difficult for me. That was one that was very difficult for me. Uh, being being in a, a politician. So I'm curious what the how would you handle the guy with the pothole versus the family looking for like what would your response to each of those people be? Well, number one, we never had the kind of budgets to buy anybody or to do anything. Well, so yeah. what you do, you just kind of refer people to where you know they need to go. Mm. And you know, sometimes I've used money out of my own pocket to help to help a family uh, during that time. And people expect because you become you be you become a politician and you're an elected person that somehow you got all this money. Which, you know, when I was there, we got practically nothing in terms of money, very low. And um, But people think you have these budgets that you can, you know, you can buy the, buy things. So you have a lot of influence, right? You have some, but you don't have a lot. I mean, I'd like to talk to the bureaucracy rather than the politicians right. in opposition because they were, they're the ones that get it done if they want to. Or if they don't want to, it doesn't get done either. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
you know, it's a lot of power inside there. Mm. I'm curious, uh, backing up a bit um, to, I guess, the point where you, you won the election, and how how did you learn, or what were the learning uh, challenges for becoming an MLA? You basically have to learn the principles of social work if you're going to be in your community, which especially in opposition, right? Uh, because people come to you because they're opposing uh, the government. So you have to educate yourself around those policies and procedures. And people would send you all kinds of stuff, like books of information or whatever. And then if you had a portfolio, like I had, I think one of mine was Consumer Affairs and the other one was Stats of Women or whatever. And uh, so people expected you to know this stuff. Mm. And... So the learning curve is really deep and wide. And there is no job description. You you get a little bit of training around um, the rules in the house, when you're in the house, right? Certain things you can do, certain things you can't do. But there really is no way for you to deal with those issues other than through, if you have a researcher, you get your researcher to, and you know, we, we all had somebody assigned to us. Uh, if you had a, um, um, you know, somebody in your constituency office, but basically the constituency office work is more like social work. You know, people call, they want something, you go dig up some information, you provide them, you support them, uh, you know, with information when you can. But other than that, uh, you rely on basically your team, you know, which is your researcher team your librarian team, your constituency association, and people in the community that uh, who feel that you have a lot of power and you can get things done. But you're in opposition. You don't have that, number one. Um, but you, all you do is have the strength to be able to, you know, try to maneuver some things in terms of talking to the bureaucracy, which I did, and, you know, we get some things done. Um, but, you know, it's difficult because you have... Uh, a caucus that you're working with and you have a community that you work with and sometimes the two don't meet. The objectives are different, right? Mm. And so that can be kind of challenging at times when uh, when you want to talk about things, you know, especially during question period and stuff like that. That stuff's all organized anyway, you know. I mean, it's none of it's off the cuff. Mm-hmm. It looks like it, but really none of it is. And um, I w- didn't know going into this work that that's sort of what it was about, really. The pre-organized element of it. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that you can, in opposition, you can speak against, right? You can get a few things if you build, you know, the proper relationships. But the structures and the policies inside don't really go anywhere. They don't really change. Because the bureaucracy runs the, runs the government, you know, really and truly, I mean, from my perspective. It does. Why doesn't things change more? You can't get change done because the structures would not allow you to do very much. You can put it's like putting new patches on old clothing. Right? You can cover it up. You can make a little change and be all excited about it and have conference and press releases and all that. But it doesn't it's not much <laughs> for the general population. And and when you say you can, you know, patch it up, 
Uh, are you saying that you as a member of the opposition or are you saying that extends to people in um, government as well? Well, it extends to people in government because opposition, you can't do anything but criticize. Right. And you're saying even the people in government can only patch things well, up? That, well, yeah, that's their structure. That's the structure of government from my perspective. And I've never been there. So I can't say what happens around... Um, what happens around the table with the, with the you know, the cabinet table. I, I, uh, mm. I can't say what that looks like. I mean, I know the things that we mm. had to deal with, with in our own caucus and the issues that we could bring forward, to, you know, for discussion and to make things look differently. But the structure itself does not allow for a lot of that. You know, even the government that I supported, the NDP, I was very excited and yet very disappointed because they couldn't change the structure. They could do some things, but they couldn't do what we talked about all these years, right? We couldn't do it. And so the question I would have is, why couldn't we do it? From my perspective, there's still no African Nova Scotians uh, in, in positions of power in government. There's no deputy ministers. Diversity committees, we have things like nothing really brings forth the kind of change in communities that would make a difference. I like to see communities be in partnership with government, in collaboration with government. But it doesn't happen. They won't let you do that. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you don't. you can't have those real conversations that says, you know, for example, this is the African Nova Scotian males that drop out of school. If you were to look at the, some of the research, by the time they're in grade 10, they're missing. They're gone. Where are they going? Where are they gone? They don't move away. It's because they quit school in grade 9, in grade 8, right? Can't find employment. They get involved in, in you know, crime and all of those things. Government has the opportunity to fix that. 2% of African Nova Scotians, 2% of the population, 2% or 2.5%. Every African Nova Scotian person should be working at something. Should be either working or in school or have a business. Every one of them. And the kids that are coming up behind, that would contribute so much to this economy. So much. Is that hard to do? I don't know. I'm not there. I guess it is hard to do. But when, then when you see how, you know, single mothers who are struggling with their kids and how community services change their policies, that is only oppressing young people, only oppressing poor people. Um, I thought those things would change under the NDP government. I mean, that's what I put out there in my, in my community. And it didn't change. And now it's worse. Mm. Right? And now it's worse. So it's those things that frustrate me to no end. And, and people say, well, you want to get back into politics? It's like, no. Because I don't think that's where the change is going to come. So where does change come from? Change comes when communities rise up. And we can see this across the world when they rise up. And sometimes they lose their community when they do that. Um, when you rise up against the government, if they don't want to let go. I don't, I don't see that happening in Canada. But Canada is a new country compared to some European countries and, you know, uh, some other third world countries, Canada is young. It could, there's all kinds of possibilities where, you know, it can happen when you fight the government in any real way, right? And we've seen it happen in other countries. But um, 
Canadians are very passive, anyway, from my perspective. The Americans say that they have low self-esteem. Right? Americans say the Canadians have low self-esteem. Yeah, you say they come they come to the United States to work and they don't want to move out of their positions to higher positions. So low self-esteem. Uh, anyway, so I mean, I think communities do what they can do, and I think they do a terrific job. But what is the role of government then? Hmm. Really, isn't it to provide for the communities that is helping them by paying their taxes and all of those things so that the people who cannot do better can have an opportunity to do better. But when you take away, I don't see where there's really good positive change. As, as somebody who came into the position of looking at wanting to win that seat very badly out there, canvassing in February with all the ice, and then getting there, and then it's like, okay, when do I start doing the real work? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious if, what the, if we could talk about the legislature itself uh, for uh, a little bit. I was a surprise to the legislature because the first black woman in Atlantic Canada, really, uh, to hold a seat um, as an MLA. In the House, it was, it was not a comfortable place to be, only with my colleagues, right? And there were more women there at that time. I think there was five of us or six of us. In caucus? Yeah, in, uh, in, yeah, at the time. So it was, it was great the way we... Uh, sometimes we would just tease the opposition and all the women would sit in the front row just for fun, stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, because the men could be pretty mean, actually. Um, so for me personally, I didn't like going into the cafeteria to eat because nobody would sit with me. The only person to ever come and sit with me from the opposition was John Hamm. He would come. If I was there by myself, he would. Yeah. if there was no other, but nobody else from my party, uh, which is really kind of silly, but he would come and, and, and sit and we'd chat and that sort of thing, but the others wouldn't, right? Yeah. Sometimes they would make underhanded racist remarks, right? Like uh, one guy said to me once, uh, I was standing in line to get um, to get my lunch, and so I picked up a banana, and he goes, Oh, you like bananas, do you? I, said, I looked at him, I didn't answer him. He said, Oh, Wayne Adams liked bananas too. And I thought that was a very insulting remark, but I wasn't prepared for that. To me, I had thought people were above that sort of thing. Because, come on, these are mm. people who somebody voted for but they weren't above that that's for sure you know no yeah stuff like that so you could feel it you know sometimes people would in across the aisle would would try to scare you down um people when you got up to speak people didn't really listen right um you know people would say um they wouldn't you know hassle me a lot openly uh, but you could see that they were talking to each other, and and you know they did that with all of us basically. But I just found it, you know, that the staring at me was—I <laughs> didn't know what that was about. Was it just at you, or would they do it to other members? Well, I I noticed that a few of them that would just do it to me, right? And uh, but I figured, well, you can't stare me down. You're gonna have—you're the one that's gonna have to. I'm gonna pay chicken here. You're gonna have to avert your eyes. So it was little things like that. It was, um, you know, I mean, 
it was a place where, you know, a place of performance. The host is a place of performance. That is not where the work gets done. Um, the NDP at that time, we couldn't put forth a bill because nobody would look at it or read it, even when it was something that was really good for the community. I remember I put forth a housing bill for North Preston, and basically it was about changing the way that they appoint people to, to the housing board, right? The Preston Air Housing Board. They wouldn't even think about it. They, didn't, they never touched it. And so instead what happened is that organization couldn't do any work for that length of time because nobody would appoint anybody. So to me, is what's that about? Is that just how, you know, I'm in opposition and you're the government and you have the power? So you're not really thinking about the impact of how that works with other people. You're not thinking about the community in that way. Mm. And that's that's with stuff that I, I had a hard time getting by. Because I thought that's why we were there. Why mm. everybody was there. Right. And would there be, I guess, moving outside of the actual space itself, um, if you're saying it's a performative space and a theatrical space, um, are there were there opportunities to advance those kind of issues outside of the legislature itself? Well, in community, you could, if you got people to be able to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm thinking with, with the government. Well, well, only with some of the bureaucracy. Okay. So you may see a minister, So, because you were in the house. No, there was a couple of ministers I would talk to about things I wanted to get done. One of them was around forestry, I think. And I would talk to him, and he would say, oh, no, we're not going to do anything. Blah, blah, blah. And so... Whenever I had a chance, like at the break of something, I would continue to talk to him and Xavier. I know you can do something, you know, to help support the community around this issue. And so eventually he did. You know, it was, it was something to do with um, Crown Land, where somebody had um, their their property had butt against Crown Land, something, and they wanted to do something, which was very easy to do because government owned Crown Land. So there's stuff you could do mm. around that. So. That was one of the things that I found that was really interesting that we were able to do. And then around um, around the Condominium Act during those days, where the owners wanted to take condominiums and turn them into apartments. And so they were buying people out. And some of those folks were seniors, and they bought those apartments for their retirement. And the owners were buying them out, turning them into, into apartments, and offering them a lot less money than what they bought them for. So... Um, I would go to those meetings and people would have those conversations and, you know, they talk about, we formed a group at that time that I used to attend along with my researcher. And uh, I think that was, you know, very appreciative that at least we were trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in the long run, the owners went out, you know, that they did buy out those mm-hmm. condominiums. Some, you know, I mean, there's always stuff in the law that, I'm not a lawyer, so I mean, I, I, uh, I just went basically to try to support and to bring the information back to my caucus to say, is there anything we can do mm-hmm. when we're in the house? Is there any questions we can ask so the community can see what's going on, right? Uh, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful, you know. Um, issues around the Indigenous Black and Micmac program where the Premier said that uh, it was not a program that was, you know, as high as the regular program. And that was not true, so... Dealing with that sort of followed, you know, mm-hmm. the media loves that kind of stuff, and 
And then sometimes it's con caucus. It's like, you know, you got to be careful. You can't say too much. And so maybe you shouldn't ask this question. Maybe somebody else should ask it. And, you know, so. This is what you're doing in caucus. Yeah. Hmm. When, you're, when you're preparing for the House, you're preparing for the legislature, you know, you, you know what questions are going to be asked and you also know the answers. Hmm. So it's nothing new. I'm curious about uh, to talk about caucus, uh, and maybe before I ask the question, just, uh, I'm having trouble with dates. The how were you a part of the that big wave of yes NDP? That was in '98. '98 when there was like 19, was it? Yes. Okay, um, so that was a fairly large caucus. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how how decision making or how like what. A meeting of caucus ends up uh, looking or sounding like. What role did that sort of space serve for for your caucus and how yeah. did your concerns or issues get on the agenda there? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, there's always priorities. You know, the flavor of the day, whatever's current uh, in that particular day. Uh, when you're going in the house, you uh, that that goes on the agenda whatever is current basically and so sometimes there's things you wanted to bring because you only had so many questions for question period you wanted to bring but you couldn't bring because other things would override you and also the backroom voice you always get those um they would make decisions before we even get the caucus right <laughs> and i i found that there are people who were in caucus at that time who were very um very left-wing, you know, in a way, like people like Howard Epstein and people like Jerry Pye and, you know, Maureen McDonald. Those folks were, you know, there was always that, that, that battle between what you should put on the table, what you should talk about, what you should do, um, and how, or how you should say it. Um, there was always that. Some of the women in the caucus, of course, felt as if they weren't being heard, you know, uh, because I have a big mouth, I push myself, but I still don't think anybody heard me, but at least I felt in my mind that at least I'm talking, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and and some of the women would not talk. I mean, they would just simply get upset. So whether it's in caucus or, and we weren't in government at that time or in the house, you always have that group of people who seem to be run everything, make decisions and bring it to the table, and it's like, well, are we going to discuss this? Well, this is the current situation, so we have to do this. So, well, well, what about my question that I've been holding off? Uh, well, the time is gone because it's kind of old now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of not relevant. So you wait for your next chance, right? Uh -huh. uh, and you're saying those decisions that have already been made because they're they're current um, and they're going to be the priorities. That's coming from the backroom boys or the leaders? Well, the... well, I think it comes from a number of sources. I think it comes from, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the backroom boys, which is, uh, who've already had some of those discussions before they, they even come. Uh, now, there's times when there were open discussions uh, about things, but a lot of it was you know, predetermined ahead of time. And then it was, what questions are you going to ask and, and who's going to ask them and and what follow-up questions. And, you know, you get, you know the answer before you even ask the questions. So that's why you have so many researchers and that sort of thing who, who will be able to kind of help with that. And basically, like I said, it's, it's kind of like a performance, 
you know. Um, and then when the house is closed, everybody goes for a drink. <laughs> it doesn't matter which side you're on. That's, but and I didn't expect that. Didn't expect the going for a drink. Well, no, I didn't expect that. That's how it worked. Huh. Okay. I thought it was much more serious. I thought being in the house was where you actually got work done. Uh, probably in young government, you could, you know, you could table those bills. And you could have, you could do that. But in opposition, nobody paid any attention to that, you know. And then when we had um, our budget review stuff, you know, what were the, we had committees and all of that stuff where people would come in uh, and present on various things. Uh, it was an opportunity for the community. But, and, you know, you learned a lot. It, for me, I was, because I wasn't coming from that, it was, the learning curve was, was pretty deep and wide for me. And so I had, I did have... Um, and then there was no black folks there, so um, I said, well, you know, I want to be nice to have a researcher from the community. So we got a researcher. He was a young guy. He was a lawyer. Uh, they hired him as a researcher. And then uh, there was a girl who was in communication that I knew. And I said, you got to hire some people. So they hired her. And I think she was still there. I think she may be gone now. She may have retired. But uh, then Al, um, Floyd, he moved to Toronto. But it was nice having them there. It really was being able to bounce things off them. And, mm. and so my perspective sometimes in terms of when I was going to present, that would come through. Because I'm representing Preston, but I also have to be cognizant of the fact that I'm representing others as well. Mm. So this is why, you know, the media would say, well, this is only a one-term MLA. Because I was dealing probably too much with community issues. Mm. Right? Or one or two. And I was very open about it. I was open about the fact that I think that we should have had um, more space for regional representation in the African Nova Scotia community if we wanted to get anything done. Mm. Right? I'm curious, were there, it sounds like uh, there was times where you certainly were at least uh, kind of uh, confused by, or at least uh, maybe confused isn't the right words, but. Uh, mm not having more influence over the direction of, of the party. Were there any times where, I guess, that, um, you know, with a specific issue where it was, like, important enough to you that it uh, was something you dealt with in a, another public forum or uh, offline where, you know, it was a kind of a, I can't, I'm not comfortable with this decision moving forward, or uh, was that not the case? You really had to kind of, toe the party line, so to speak, right? So you you did have to be kind of careful how you put stuff out there because, you know, you're supporting your party, right? Um, so running into that in community, well, people always wanted to know, like one day you're just a regular person, the next day you're a politician, and so one day you're honest, the next day you're dishonest. So, you know, that's how community would see you, and then they think you can do lots of stuff. And so sometimes you simply would have to tell them, you know, inside, that's not how it works. It doesn't work like that. You just can't go to somebody and get things done. You just can't, you know, we just can't do it that way. What we can do is, it's more like, in your constituency, is social work, basically. And everybody who works in that manner, or some people who don't even bother, but that's about the best you can do. And as, like I said, especially in opposition, and uh, then when we were defeated on a money bill, 
of course. I was only there 18 months. Uh, defeated on the money bill, and then we lost. You know, we were hoping that this would be the turning point, but we've just made too many mistakes. Oh my God, we just. Besides the caucus? Where's the party? The party made too many mistakes. I think they did anyway. Or do you think they were? Well, I think they just dressed up Robert too much. The way I think his handlers dressed him up to look more like a traditional Liberal Party as opposed to those NDP values that we talked about up until that point. And I think he fell into that trap, right? I'm not sure exactly what we could have done. I think if we would have been more open uh, about you know, what we actually wanted to do at that point, that we may have, you know, moved over. But I guess it wasn't meant to be. But uh, I think NDP values are not clear. I think that inside the party, there's still that divide. Um, the people don't want to move too close uh, to the left and, and, and really bring some of the values that we talked about and make them real for communities. Because I think that's what people were waiting for, just waiting. We were like waiting for something to change, some realness. And even inside, when I was there, I, I sometimes think that people didn't really, even the people who were running, the didn't really uh, have the conversations about what that meant, right? Mm. You know, you get people like Howard and, and, and Jerry who had very specific ways of thinking about that. But instead of having those conversations in the open, but what does that look like to you? People shut them down. People who are more centered would shut them down. And saw that, I, I think they saw that as a threat to the party, to the, to, you know, the party elite. I think that was a threat. Mm. And so you had to keep just keep those backroom boys just... That's what I think. Uh, I And that we, even though we won government, we had good plans. I wasn't there then. I kind of wished I would have been at that time. Hmm. But um, I think we keep blowing it, and I'm, I'm not sure why. Hmm. Are you still involved in the party now? I pay my dues. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do a lot. Maureen is a really good friend of mine, so... Okay. You know, we, we, we meet from time to time and chat, but I don't I do not do a whole lot with the party. I mean, the Constituency Association in Preston died, and it died after the it was evaluated with, with Rest of Dartmouth, and the organization just wasn't... We tried to hold it together. But, hmm. And then the young man that ran in the last election, uh, he didn't... He got barely any votes. And, Andre King? Yeah. Yeah, but he was brave, brave to run. He was a good kid. I mean, I think he would have done well, frankly. Mm. But Keith had that quite sewed up. Mm. So you were elected for about 18 months, was mm. it? And the election was called. And the election was called. Yeah. Um, and you re-offered? Yeah, I did. Okay. And I did run. I probably could have run that seat again. But what happened? David Hensby ran... And my nephew, Wendell Thomas, ran for the Liberals, knowing he could never win. But I remember he had a mobile, and he would go around. But he was really supporting David, right? Really? Yes, he was. So he would go to North Preston, and he would work up those people about, you know, 
how great things are. But he was really supporting David. So the people who were kind of on the edge looking at, you know, the liberals would vote for, for David. So he spent, he did get win that seat, right, for the Tories. Because he was going to be a cabinet minister. This is what he was telling everybody. And he was going to do all this work, right? Uh, which, of course, didn't happen. But uh, but my nephew, he, he did apologize later that he shouldn't have done that. And he had some supporters who really thought he could win. I mean, that was just so stupid, but he they really thought he could win. But he split the vote, right? The NDP vote and um, the Liberal vote, and David just took it. He got in there, and then he hated it. And um, so then he didn't run again. He ran for council. He ran for council. Because mm. that's where he had some importance. Mm. So would you ever run for politics again? No. I did run for the uh, for councillor. Oh. Then David won that again. I did that. Why did I do that? Uh, I don't know, just to try it. I, I didn't have a lot of interest. Mm. Right? I, I don't mind trying new things. So, you know, didn't cost me any money. Mm. Uh, really, had a few supporters. Went around and talked to people. It's different. It's so different. I wouldn't want to be a counselor. No? No. I realized that when I was running. It's like, no, I, this doesn't, I don't like it. Right? So what was it about provincial politics that attracted you there? <sighs> That's an interesting question as well. I think it was an opportunity to see the communities in a different light. So if I could get in there and start thinking about what I wanted to do. And maybe I was thinking more in terms of the African Nova Scotian community than I was in general. Then maybe we could make a difference. You know, if I was there, not just a face, right? If I was there and I could actually do something. But it was hard because in opposition, you uh, when you're out to various things, there's usually no people of color, usually all men. And sometimes those things were hard, and I hated shaking hands. Like community events, community events, anything political like that, when you had to go and shake hands, and meet people. Um, but it wasn't what I thought. Like I keep saying that that uh, I thought there would be more power as an MLA. Hmm. I did. I really thought that once you got in there, you knew the rules, you followed the rules, that you could actually uh, do a few things. Maybe if I was there longer, I might have been able to achieve more things. Hmm. Um, yeah. Earlier you were talking about the fact that the sort of the system, the structure of government mm. um, isn't one that allows you to do big changes. You can do sort of the patchwork yeah. changes. Uh, do you have anything in mind for ways that that could be improved so that it was more relevant and more responsive and more uh, easily changed when change is necessary? People have to move out of their their own personal mindset. Right, you have to look at the people that you represent. Um, I don't know if I can articulate this very well. As whole people, whole human beings, that have different needs and may need different things, but you have to really understand it. Somebody comes to see you as an MLA and tells you all this stuff, and they sit there and they take it all in and then they dismiss it when they want to do it. There needs to be something where people can actually say, 
I don't know what this feels like. But you're telling me what it's like. And I have to trust that. And here's what I need to be able to help and support. You can't just say, well, we have to save money now. So how do we save money? But at the same time, we have to keep our voting population intact, right? So we can win the next time. Have to save money, keep the voting intact. So who becomes important and what becomes less important? So, but if you're somebody who has never been part of that, you don't see that. That's not in your vision. You don't have a lens for that. So if somebody's coming to you and saying, this community is in dire straits. The women's community, you know, women are being abused. We need more money for our transition houses or whatever. You don't have a lens for that. You don't understand what that would be like. And so what you would do is fight with people because you don't want to give them money. Because you don't see it. You can talk to people. You can talk, But a lot of it is that personal thing that happens inside of us. That, that, that understanding that... And maybe politicians can't do that because maybe they'd break down and cry. I don't know. But it's that lack of, humani- of, of, of human- humanness around what other people could experience that you don't understand and to have it. It can happen. I've seen it happen. Maybe not with politicians, but I've seen it happen with you know, pe- people on community health boards and who work in collaboration with community that really sit back and listen and can really understand what people are talking about and then moving things in a way in which they're supportive and then they use their contacts, which we don't have. We don't have those things. You know, where can we hire our brother and our sister? You know, we're not there. Where can we hire our wife to be a, you know, a director in the Department of Health? We don't, we don't, we're not in. And so there's, you, you either provide uh, ways in which you bring people in because people have done it or you provide ways to keep them out. If a doctor is telling you service for women in Nova Scotia is bad because we don't have obstetricians, you're just going to kick that out the door or are you going to be able to sit down and say, well, we have to take a serious look aside from the money. Mm-hmm. You can't say, okay, if we hired two more or three more doctors... This is what it's going to cost us. You can't approach it from that way because when you approach it from that, you can't see anything else. Right. It's okay? just a dollars and cents. It's just a dollars and cents. You can't see anything else. So you can't see ways in which you may be able to preserve your dollars and cents if you did it differently. Mm-hmm. But you have no vision for that. There's no sight. I see some of the ministers right now that they won't even talk to community. You can't get a meeting with them at all, period. Mm-hmm. And they would cut, 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 cut because... They don't have that vision. So when when we're voting for people to represent us, we need a different lens as well as community. We need to see things differently. We need to ask different questions, you know? Uh, and we need to have different conversations. But it's so historical how people are voted in and, you know, the arguments and the fight. I don't know. What were those different questions and different conversations we need to have as the electorate when we're voting people in? Be well, I think that you know, I don't have all the answers, but I think you can't just go to a meeting where your politicians up front telling you what they're going to do, and you throwing a few questions at them because you're angry. 
you know, you have to have a, be able to have a way, a structure in which people are talking about their issues. And then, you know, having those politicians figure out, how can you take this forward before I vote for you? Mm-hmm. You know, do a little homework. You know, just don't knock on my door and tell me what you're doing. Do it, if you're serious, do a little homework. Mm-hmm. Find out what my community is all about. And don't go, you know, and throw some patchwork on the ground where there's potholes and say that this is what I'm doing when I know that that's been in the work for 10 years and you just happen to get this community when you happen to be voted in. (laughs) (laughs) It's those kinds of things. that I don't know all the answers. I just know, I probably don't have any answers, that you've got to begin to see things through a different lens, you know, Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so that you can have a different kind of conversation where you're, you may not be in the community, you may not have, you know, you've had a, a life where you're privileged, so none of the stuff impacts you. You, you can hear people say it, mm-hmm. but it has no relevance, it has no meaning. So how do you get people, and this is my question, how do you get people to begin to think outside of that box mm-hmm. without having an opportunity to have conversations? They're trying, I think, with the colored home stuff, but I guarantee you it will not last. Why do you think it won't? Because people are not going to talk about important issues. People being everybody or the people being... The government folks who mm-hmm. are part of the, that restorative issue and those restorative... Those are hard, hard conversations. And uh, when you've got a group of deputy ministers sitting in a room, what would you anticipate? The most useless. What are they going to talk about? What are, what are they talking about? I don't know. Neither do I, but I can guarantee you it probably won't be the things that the community is expecting them to talk about. Mm. And, and and I'm not blaming them because I know that, you know, that it's hard for them to step outside of that because it's it's always focused on the structure, it's focused on money, it's focused on the next election. Mm. So how can you set people up for the next election and the next election so you can get voted back in? And I use the word set people up because you have to do it that way to be reelected. You have to set them up to think that it's going to be better. I hear people who, who get money from the government now for some of the nonprofit organizations, and they constantly say things like, even though they've been cut, all the organizations have been cut this year, all the, not just the black organizations, all those organizations. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. Or if you were to advise somebody from your community about mm. um, running, running, and, and being a, a good MLA, what would you tell them? I would tell them, you know, just do it. Because you have to think about if you're going to think about change, you just can't sit back the way I'm sitting back and talking about it because I don't want to run again. Uh, but if you have the capacity to do it. Do it. Like, think about it. I mean, people think about, well, I can't do this because it's hard. Well, anytime you can get a job with no job description, it can't be that hard. Right? (laughs) Seriously. So, your interview is basically coming from notes. It's coming from votes. People who think that you can do a better job. So, I think the more people get out there and do it, that over time some of the stuff will change. And I'd like to see younger people getting involved. 
because I know once, you know, and then the bureaucracy inside, people have careers and they want to build on their careers and stuff like that. But I would tell them, if you can do it, do it. People used to ask me, well, why are you doing this? And I would say, because I can. I don't, I don't know of any other answer to give people. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have any reason other than that, you know. Try it. Well, thanks so much for your time. For well, you're for most welcome. I, I enjoyed very this. Very interesting interview. Well, I hope I didn't talk too much and get That's myself the point. in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not to get you in trouble, but to get you to talk a lot. So. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Record Off Script. We will be back again with full episodes in September, and in the meantime, stay tuned for more interviews like this one, where we give you a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what the podcast is made up of and some of the more interesting conversations we had with former MLAs from all parties and all walks of life. If you haven't done so yet, take a minute and head over to the podcast page on Apple Podcasts and give this podcast a rating. It means a lot to us. It means that people with interests similar to yours can have an easier time finding podcasts like this one that they presumably would also like. And if you haven't had a chance to consider donating, consider going to offscript.ca slash donate and signing up to be a donor for $3, $5, 8 bucks a month, whatever you feel this podcast is worth to you.